0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the Scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. We wanted to let you know that we have started a Facebook page to listen to the podcast, especially missionaries. If you have a missionary friend out there who would like to be exposed to this, or you want to just share this, Bryce and I just want to make this as accessible as we can. Yep. And so anything we can do, but one of the challenges is we
0: may not be able to respond to every question or post that's put on Facebook.
1: We'll do our very best. So if we don't, please forgive us. Awesome. And today we're going to be in Mormon 7, 8, and 9. And Mormon 7 is Mormon ending the record. And we're going to come back to that, aren't we, Bryce?
0: Yeah, let's do that at the end, because the most important message here is Moroni's now left alone with this record, and Moroni knows exactly how important this record is. And so in these two chapters, he's going to talk about... We need to preserve this record, and because in the latter days, this book's going to come forth at a very time when it has all the answers to the society's problems. He's going to keep saying that. It's going to come forth in a time when it has this problem. But the Book of Mormon has the solution to those problems. So we're going to focus right now on Moroni's vision of what this book is going to do in the future and why it needs to be preserved.
1: Yeah. So it, it comes forth in a day when all this stuff's going on. So if you go to Mormon 8, Moroni tells us. So I know it's called Mormon 8, but Moroni is the speaker. And so if you go to verse 27, it says, It will come in a day when the blood of the saints shall cry unto the Lord because of secret combinations and the works of darkness.
0: And yet what book talks about secret combinations and it has a solution for secret combinations? So it's going to come in a day when the very problems of that society can be solved by what's in the book. And do that again, Mike, do it in the next one.
1: Yeah. So we have works of darkness. And then in verse 28, it says, it shall come in a day when the power of God shall be denied and churches will be defiled and lifted up in the pride of their hearts, yea, even in a day when leaders of churches and teachers shall rise up in the pride of their hearts, even to the envying of them who belong to their churches. Now I'm gonna say this, I think the word churches can mean more than just churches. It comes out of ecclesia, it comes out of the word of a group of people. So do we live in a day where there is people that belong to certain factions that hate people in other factions? And I think that I think that's what Moroni is seeing is he's seeing this massive division where everybody's kind of against each other. And going back to Nephi, Nephi
0: also saw our day and he talked about churches that are set up to get gain. So the church of getting gain, the church of having power over the flesh, the church of popularity, the church of lust. And that's not how we usually think of the term church, but that's kind of how the Book of Mormon authors are thinking it. We live in a day where organizations are filled with pride. And so Moroni says the Book of Mormon is going to come forth in a day where there will be so much pride in the world, and yet of all the books on earth, which one best helps us overcome pride? Which one deals with the pride cycle and antidotes to the pride cycle? It's the Book of Mormon. And Moroni keeps saying that. This book's going to come forth in a time when it has the solutions to everything that's wrong with that society. Look at verse 29. It's going to come in a day when there shall be heard of fires and tempests and vapors and smoke. In other words, there's going to be commotion prior to the second coming of Christ. Well, what book talks about the commotion prior to the first coming of Christ and helps us navigate that commotion and be prepared for the coming of Christ? This is it. We're this is it. it. Yeah. This is the book. This is totally it. Verse 31, it shall come in a day when there shall be pollutions upon the face of the earth, and murder, and robbing, and lying, and all, de- and deceiving, and whoredoms, and all manner of abominations. We're living in that And day. yet, what book helps us overcome those very problems? What book talks about a society and its dealings with those very problems and help- helps us overcome them? Do you see what Moroni is doing? Don't reject this book because it will come forth when it is it, it is most needed, when it has the solutions. I believe what Moroni is saying here is there is not a problem in the latter days that the Book of Mormon can't help
1: solve, so don't reject the book. And the reason why he's saying that is because he's seen it. So go there, Mike. Let's go to verse 34 and 35. What does he say? Behold, the Lord has shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come at the day when these things, and the word for things is the same as the word for words. So the words of the Book of Mormon shall come forth among you. Behold, I speak unto you as if you are present, and yet you are not. But behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. Later, we're going to read that Moroni has been introduced into the presence of the Lord while in mortality. So both he and his father have had visions and they've seen the Savior. And so because Moroni has had these visions, later he's even going to say, if it were possible, I could show all things unto you. In other words, he's had this panoramic vision And his message is tailored to us, like we're talking about. And so what Bryce and I are going to do is just talk a little bit about those verses and kind of unpack this idea and show how the Book of Mormon is relevant because the issues in there are totally related to our day. So allow us to jump out of Mormon 8. We're going to jump out of
0: our block today, and we're going to take a look at the whole Book of Mormon. If what Moroni just said is true of him, it's certainly true of his father that Mormon saw our day. Mormon saw great details of our day. He knew exactly the problems that we would face. Therefore, he handpicked what he put on the gold plates to match the needs of our day. So if you want to have a fascinating little journey, go through the Book of Mormon and ask yourself, what did Mormon see? What did he throw into the Book of Mormon that could possibly have been motivated by the world in which we
1: live. So what do you got, Mike? Give us a couple. I'm going to pick up about four of these that I think are really relevant. One of the first things that we see is Nephi and Lehi's vision of the tree. And so if you remember 1 Nephi 8 and 1 Nephi 11, Nephi sees this tree and he uses all these superlatives to describe it, the vision that he and Lehi have, things like most sweet and most white And this tree is going to represent the love of God. And it's a multivalent symbol representing Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and Jesus. And it's an overlay for the whole text because then in the rest of 1 Nephi, Nephi says, let me show you how the Nephites are associated with the tree and how the Nephites accepted it and how they rejected it. And then let me show you how the Lamanites interact with the tree and then the Jews and then the Gentiles.
0: And it's not just how they interact with the tree, but it's also the building was the imitation happiness. So he's constantly going to show us how Jews, Gentiles, Nephites, and Lamanites are fooled by an imitation. If you think about the whole book, it's how were they and how are we fooled by modern-day imitations that are not a true source of happiness. And then he also goes forward to say it's the blinders. The Book of Mormon is constantly addressing what blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts. That theme of the tree of life flows all over the Book of Mormon because it's so relevant in our day. It's a big deal. We live in a day where people have a tree. There is a tree. There is a true source of happiness. And then there's an imitation happiness that is fooling so many people. And then we live in a day where there are um, mists of darkness that blind eyes and harden hearts. And yet... There's a rod. So this is so relevant in our day. It's fascinating that it comes up at the beginning
1: of the Book of Mormon and flows all throughout the book. Yep. So critical. So, and remember that word happiness, because we're going to come back to that word. As we talk about this and as we talk about the blinders, think about this. As soon as the Nephites become separated from the Lamanites, as soon as we have that separation, they start to amass wealth. And so in Jacob's narrative, it's the beginning of the kingdom. We've got kings, and Jacob comes out and he says, I've got a lot of anxiety. I've got a lot of desire. I'm kind of weighed down. And then he talks about chastity, and he talks about wealth and class distinctions. And he says, we've got to rid ourselves of this. If you go to Jacob 2, verse 19, he says, this is the purpose of wealth, and it's for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and liberate the captive and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. And because the Nephites start to amass wealth in the next verse, he introduces this concept of pride. And that's going to be a golden thread that's woven throughout the text of the Book of Mormon is the Nephites have to rid themselves of this desire to acquire wealth and to get themselves into class distinctions. And if you think about this today, we live in a world today where industry is waging war against labor, and labor is waging war against industry, and everyone wants to get everybody else mad organizations or mad at other organizations, and we're fighting over class and power and wealth. And I love Brigham Young where he said, you know, the saints can stand mobbing and whipping and being driven out of Missouri, but as soon as you give us wealth— We're going to send ourselves to hell because we just get full of pride. And so that's a very relevant thing today. And ask yourself this question. No matter what country you're you're in right now, there probably is somewhere in the news, people, churches, organizations fighting over these things, money and wealth and distributing it in classes. And the uh, antidote to these problems in the Book of Mormon is if you have wealth, then let's build each other up. And so that's something we see throughout the text, for example, in the end of Third Nephi, where they have all things in common, and they actually have 200 years of peace. And ask yourself, whatever country you're in, has your country ever had 200 years of continual peace? And even when we
0: get into Fourth Nephi, where it talks about the no more ites, and there's no more separation, and there's no more class distinction, that phrase, no more ites, Is just waving a red flag to say, do you see, those of you that live in the latter days, how compartmentalized you've become, how distinction-oriented you've become? And yet here is Jesus in the society saying, no, there were no more ites. There were no more
1: contentions. So again, a major theme written for our day. Now, the text of the Book of Mormon, when it comes to these ideas of wealth, and this is tied into government as well, the Book of Mormon is addressing, well, what is the best government? And a big question of the Old Testament was, why did we get wrecked? If we're God's people, why did we lose the temple? And if you read First and Second Kings, which reads drastically different than the Chronicles narrative, the Kings editors say the reason we got wrecked is because our kings were wicked. And the Book of Mormon picks up that baton and comments on kings, and we get a foil in Mosiah. We get a king that's good, and we get a king that's bad. We get Benjamin, and we get Noah, and then the Book of Mormon drops this. Now think about this. Right before I read this, ask yourself, when did the Book of Mormon come out? When when was it put to light? So here's the text. Go to Mosiah 29 and look in verse 13. This is Mosiah talking. He says, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings, Who would establish the laws of God and judge this people according to his commandments? Yea, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did. I say to you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. That is such a big statement. Now, one of the reasons why it's a big statement is there's no way Joseph Smith would write this.
0: (laughs) It came on the heels of the American Revolution of cutting away from a
1: king. Yeah, no way. And think about this as well. 1829, the book is published. This is the beginning of the end of potentates or kings. This is the beginning of the constitution, the seedbed of the restoration, the nation of the United States, this little teeny ragtag band of colonies. Write this document. And for the next 200 years, that document like tendrils of light just ripples across the earth and it liberates billions of people we're the end of this idea of kings. And we get into this idea of separation of powers. Now, this isn't a lesson on government, but if you go to Mosiah twenty-nine twenty-nine, it talks about, you know, you have higher judges and you have lower judges. And if the higher judges mess up, the lower judges will kick in. In other words, we're separating this out. And why is this important? Because the Book of Mormon is tackling the tendency that people have when they get power to run away with it. And so it's balancing these ideas and it's holding the card though and says, clearly we're going to separate powers, but the real card is a righteous king. So it's almost like preparing us for when Jesus will reign, but applied in our day. It says, if you read verse 33 through 39, it talks about this balance between what are my rights and what's my responsibility. And I think all of these things are so relevant today. As people are shouting for rights, I think Mosiah 29 says, okay, yeah, you have rights, but what's your duty to a fundamentally good society where we can get along and work together? These governmental ideas, by the way, ripple everywhere. And as long as we follow the true principles, it benefits us. In other words, there's countries that have never read the Book of Mormon, people that have never read it that are working in governmental systems where they're following these principles, and the light will be reflected in their lives. And so the Book of Mormon, like I said, whether they've read it or not, it's relevant to them. And so uh, clearly the solution to the problem is laid out by Jacob and in the Book of Mosiah. So those are the first couple. So we've got the vision of the tree, we've got class distinctions, wealth, and government, and the third is economic systems. So I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to call them what they are, Bryce. Those blood-sucking Gadianton's, right? (laughs) The Gadianton robbers, essentially, Mormon, as the editor, says, I'm going to show you guys these these guys pop up again and again. And then there's this line in there where he says, it's going to prove the entire destruction of our people. And the Gadianton system is essentially, I eat and you work. And the Book of Mormon really does draw this out. There's a quote I want to read. He's a commentator on Christianity, and his name is Dinesh D'Souza. And in Dinesh's book, What's So Great About Christianity, he talks about the attack that people make on Christianity when they say things like, well, what about the Inquisition? What about what the Catholics did back in the day? Or what about the Salem witch trials? And he wrote a chapter where he basically says that the people, the naysayers of Christianity got nothing on atheism. And there's this one line I want to read where he says this. Quoting about the figures of the Salem witch trials and some of the people that died in the Inquisition, he says, These figures are tragic, and of course population levels were much lower at the time, but even so they are minuscule compared with the death tolls produced by the atheist despotisms of the 20th century. In the name of creating their version of a religion-free utopia, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong produced the kind of mass slaughter that no Inquisitor could possibly match. Collectively, these atheist tyrants murdered more than a hundred million people. And that's in our lifetime. If you think of the last hundred years, a hundred million people have died. I'm going to call it Gadiantonism. Gadiantonism is essentially, you work, I eat. And in those systems, many of them communists, they essentially ruined themselves. But as I read the Book of Mormon, and if you think about this, when Joseph walks out of the sacred grove and God begins to flood light on the earth, there's always a counterfeit. And that's the beginning of Marxist theory. During those time periods, great revolutions take place, and the Book of Mormon is dealing with this. So how do we deal with wealth? Well, if you have it, share it. How do we deal with Gadiantonism? Don't join them. Avoid them. And work together with people that have light. And so... That's my take on economic systems as the Book of Mormon lays it out. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about happiness. And there's three verses I really want to read because two of them apply to our day. Well, they all apply to our day, but two of them are we're really steeped in right now. So go to Alma 50. The word happiness actually is rooted in the tree. The tree from the vision, and that's why I said you want to remember that word happy. Uh, The word for the tree is Asherah. And the word for happy is ashray. And happiness is a golden thread woven throughout the text of the Book of Mormon. And so if you go to, for example, verse 23 of Alma 50. Right in the middle of the war chapters. Yeah, they're like fighting and they're getting attacked. And they've got this leader named Moroni. And it says in verse 23, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than in the times of Moroni. Right in the middle of all this war. And then I love verse 21. This is Mormon's commentary. He says, and we see that these promises have been verified to the people of Nephi, for it has been their quarrelings and their contentions and their murderings and their plunderings and their idolatry and whoredoms and their abominations. And then Mormon writes, which were among themselves, which brought about their wars and their destructions. I think one of the themes here when it comes to happiness, I think what Mormon is trying to say is this. I wouldn't worry about these other countries as much as I was worry about what you're doing in your own home. And I think that's a really cool principle that we can kind of tie in with happiness. Which f- flows all throughout the Book of Mormon. Do you remember what Moroni says
0: to Zarahemnah That God will keep and preserve and support us as long as we are faithful unto him and unto our covenants. The Book of Mormon makes it very clear. The enemy isn't some outside force. The enemy isn't another country. The enemy is
1: within us. Nephi, if you go back to 2 Nephi 5, same kind of idea. They're being attacked. The Lamanites are coming, and the Nephites are a small band. And in my opinion, I think they're banding together with some of the indigenous people because they do things like consecrate priests in verse 26 and teachers, and they build a temple. But go to 2 Nephi five twenty seven, where it says, It came to pass we lived after the manner of happiness. So there's two really important times where they're at war, and yet they can be happy. And I really think Mormon knew that the people that would read this book would live in a day where there's hard work and war and threats and challenges. Yeah
0: all kinds of problems, and yet you can be happy. Because it goes back, if you take that all the way back to the tree that Mike mentioned, First Nephi 8, it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. The Book of Mormon makes it very clear. It is the fruit of the tree that brings real happiness, and you can live in a war You can live under threat of war. You can live under uh, prideful organization. You can live among wicked people and constantly be partaking of the fruit of the tree. And I love the fact that it's the fruit of the tree that makes you happy. It is sweet above all that is sweet, white above all that is white, pure above all that is pure. In other words, the greatest happiness on earth is reserved for those who partake of the fruit of the tree of life. And that's a major message from the Book of Mormon to the latter days, is no matter when and where, no matter what circumstances, President Nelson picked that theme up when he talked about joy. You can have joy even in trials and tribulation, because
1: joy comes from the fruit of the tree. I love that, Mike. Yeah, so good. You don't have to depend on outside circumstances. You can have peace even in the midst of this. Now... The example I'm going to share briefly is a New Testament example, but we'll go back to the Book of Mormon in a second. But if you think about Jesus's message, he was speaking to people that were just burdened with taxes under a crushing government, and yet he was always telling them that they could be happy. He was always extending that invitation to them, showing them that, hey, who, empires come and go, but you can follow me and be happy in the midst of, of all this messiness, Even in the
0: middle of a storm-tossed sea, he says, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's symbolic of a Roman government that's afflicting you or whatever. In the middle of a storm-tossed sea, he says, be
1: of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. To a group of people that are kicked out of the building and they say, where can we go to worship? In, In Alma 32, he gives this image of a tree. Once again, the root is Ashray. If you read Psalm 1, it said, Blessed or ashray is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Verse 3, he will be like a tree planted by the river of water. And he'll bring forth his fruit, and his leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does, he will prosper. That's, that's Alma 32. That's happiness. The last one is one that I don't know if we really can relate with. Because it's in the midst of this utopia and no one's mad at anybody and there's no ites and I haven't lived in that world, but we all long for it. I think everybody wants that world where we can just get along and, and be friends. And it's Fourth Nephi 1. And Mormon writes, there was no envying nor strife nor tumult or whoredom or any lines or murders or any manner of lasciviousness. And then surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. That is what the book of Mormon's after. And that is what Jesus wants. And that's what I want. And I think the book of Mormon is so relevant for us. All three of these circumstances, two of them are in the midst of great war. One of them is in the midst of this utopia, but here's what they have in common. They work together. They're led by a prophet and they're doing their best. They're not always at peace. They don't always have everything working out, but they got those three things that are going for them. And so there's a ton more, right? When Mormon says, I've seen your day, but think about this. Every one of these is relevant for us, right? The vision of the tree, wealth and class distinctions, government, economic systems, and how to be happy. I think everybody wants answers to these questions. And it's so fascinating that the Book of Mormon provides the answers
0: to our society, Uh, Let me throw in a couple more that I think are significant. I asked myself, okay, what help do we need in the latter days? What's going to be unique to the latter-day saints that we would need help? Because clearly we struggle with the natural man like anyone in any dispensation. But what help do we need in the latter days? And a couple thoughts I've had, well, we're the only generation that's going to finally win the war against Lucifer that began in premortal life. Every other dispensation fails in the end and falls into apostasy. But this is the only dispensation that will not fall into apostasy. We will win that war. So it shouldn't surprise you then that we have war chapters in the Book of Mormon that are a type and a shadow of that war that reveal to the Latter-day Saints exactly how to win the war. We have the blueprints on how to win the war against Satan written in the Book of Mormon. And clearly, you can see that Moroni is, or Mormon is saying, what help do the Latter-day Saints need, and let's provide it. Let's help them understand how to win the war against Satan. So that's a fun thing to find in the Book of Mormon. And, and it's, not,
1: it's not just a little bit. We're talking like it's, 20 chapters. Yeah, huge. Yeah.
0: A huge chunk of the Book of Mormon is kind of dedicated to that theme of we must win the war against Satan. Therefore, the Nephites have to win this war against the Lamanites. And what's funny is what causes the problems in that war? They had all power over their enemies until they opened the front door and let the enemy in. Now, if Mormon's saying, wait, these Latter-day Saints are going to have to defeat Satan, they better know what the problems are. When you start looking at the Book of Mormon as containing material that two prophets who saw our day are giving us what we need, man, those war chapters become significant. So also, may I throw in another one, and that's the Book of Helaman. I think Mormon and Moroni clearly saw a pattern between Jesus' coming in Third Nephi and the second coming. So Mormons reading the history of Jesus' first coming, and he's seen in vision the Savior's second coming, I think he clearly saw that there was a connection. Great signs, silence, destruction, Jesus comes, peace, and then ends in war. Well, that would suggest that the time period before the first coming in America is very similar to the time period before the second coming, which means Helaman is a powerful description of how to navigate the days before the second coming. So I believe Mormon threw into the book of Helaman exactly similarities and solutions to navigating the days prior to the coming of Christ. And that's why I have loved and been obsessed with the book of Helaman as a pattern of our day. Again, a gift from Mormon on... I've seen your day, I know what you need, and here it is. It's fascinating to to go back and look at the Book of Mormon and say, this book was written by two men who saw our day and knew exactly the problems that we would face and gave us solutions to those problems. So good. So let's jump back to Mormon 8 and 9. So that's kind of a, a little take on Mormon 8 where, where Moroni says, look, I—, I He's left alone with the record. He knows how important the record is. Look at, he starts talking to the person who's going to translate. I'm in Mormon 8, end of verse 14, I am the same who hideth up the record. The plates are of no worth. And then he says in the end of verse 14, the record thereof is great worth, and whoso shall bring it to light, him will the Lord bless. And so the next several verses are talking about Joseph Smith. He's talking about the one who will bring this record to life. So Mormon's very concerned about this record coming forth. And then the rest of chapter 8 is what we talked about. The reason we shouldn't reject this record is because it has the solutions to the very problems of the society when it comes forward. So that's 26 through 32 that we've talked about. What I'd like to do is turn to chapter 9. Mormon seems to talk about five reasons people will reject the book in our day. And I know it's silly to be, you know, this podcast is for people who pretty much believe the Book of Mormon is true. But I, what, I think it's fascinating. But, but if you don't believe in it, we're glad We're glad you're listening. <laughs> keep, keep listening. Because we're about to point out Moroni's concern, and here are the five reasons he sees that people will reject the Book of Mormon. And tell me if these aren't true in our day. So, chapter 9, verse 1. The first reason people will reject the Book of Mormon is simply, they do not believe in Christ. And now that's, that's a bold statement. It, it comes from Nephi. If you want to flip back in the Book of Mormon to 2 Nephi chapter 33, Nephi said it most boldly. 2 Nephi 33, as Nephi is kind of signing off, he says, Now, my beloved, I'm reading in 2 Nephi 33, 10 and 11, mainly 10. And now, my beloved brethren, and also Jew, and all ye ends of the earth, hearken unto these words and believe in Christ. And if ye believe not in these words, if you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, at least believe in Christ. And then this statement from Nephi. And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ. And he hath given them unto me, and they teach all men that they should do good. To reject the Book of Mormon is to reject Christ, because he is the source of the words. And then we find that same thing taught by Mormon. In his final chapter, chapter 7, which we'll come back to in a minute, Mormon's going to say that same thing. Verse 9, Mormon 7, 9, For behold, this, meaning the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that you may believe that, meaning the Bible. He's just talked about the scriptures that will come from the Jews. So this is written that you may believe that. And then this statement from Mormon. If you believe that... If you truly believe the Bible, you will believe this also. They're written by the same author. Jesus is the author. If you believe the Bible, if you believe in Christ, then you will believe in the Book of Mormon. And then Mormon adds in the rest of verse 9, If you believe this, if you believe the Book of Mormon, then you will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought among the power, by the power of God among them. So don't reject Jesus. So back to chapter 9. One reason that people will reject the Book of Mormon, simply put, is they don't believe in Jesus. So Moroni pleads with them to believe in
1: Christ. I think that's kind of perfect, too, because I think if you look at historically since Joseph Smith's day— has belief in Christ gone up or down? Great. And if you, if you read Mormon 7, there's this line in here I find fascinating, especially connected to historical criticism of the Bible. If you look at verse 9, it says, This is written for the intent that ye may believe that. So the Book of Mormon is actually bolstering the that in that verse is the Bible, that this is the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith is right at the beginning of serious critical scholarship. Wellhausen's this German that comes out and says, hey, there's multiple sources. I happen to like Wellhausen's stuff, but a lot of people have picked it up and gone full atheist and say, essentially, none of this stuff's true. Uh, It's all just this fabrication. And the Book of Mormon begs this question. Okay, if the Bible's a fabrication, how do you explain a farm boy busting out this stuff that is just clearly not coming out of 19th century America. In other words, it's like a mic drop by God where he says, oh, really? How you like these apples? Here's the Book of Mormon. Now you got to take it serious. And so to me, if you just take away the spirit out of all this and you just look at this as a text, you're like, you got some explaining to do. Now, I believe it because I feel the spirit and, and I believe in Jesus, but man, that's a mic drop by the Lord where he just essentially says, this is going to come in a day. When the faith and the understanding of the Bible is going to become more secularized and people aren't going to believe it. And if you go to like Pew Research, they do these studies and they say, how many of you guys believe in Jesus? Especially if you look in some of these European countries, uh, attendance in church is dwindling. Faith in God is dwindling. And I think that's kind of prophetic. I don't think that was necessarily going on in 1829. So these are things that Mormon sees, is what I'm trying to say. He sees our day, and my contention is—I hope I'm wrong—but my contention is I think we're going to have less people believe in Jesus, so the Book of Mormon is even more relevant.
0: So there's number one. Moroni says, the reality is you're going to reject the Book of Mormon if you don't believe in Christ. Now, here comes the number two. Back to Mormon 9, verse 7 is Moroni's second observation. Now I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God. Now, those of you who served a mission, this is almost verbatim what we hear people say. I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God and say that they are done away, that there are no revelations, nor prophecies, nor gifts, nor healings, nor speaking with tongues and the interpretation of tongues. If you deny these things, verse 9, he that denieth these things knoweth not the gospel of Christ, and he has not read the scriptures, and if so, he doesn't understand them. I love that. I love that. (laughs) You
1: may have read them, but you don't get them. Because
0: you don't understand them, because God does not stop speaking. Now, we as people may stop listening, but as long as there's a listening ear, there's going to be speaking. And so, yes, a lot of people have rejected the Book of Mormon because they say, well, there's no more revelation in our day. There is no revelation in our, our day. And Moroni's picking that up and saying, don't reject the book because you think there's no more revelation in our day because God will always speak. If there is no miracles in our day, it's because there's no faith. We'll get to miracles in a second. But He, he likes that word. Yeah, yeah. So that's number two: is you. There are people who deny that there's new revelation, that there's more revelation in our day, and hence they reject the Book of Mormon. And then that kind of leads to what I think is the number third, the number three at the end of verse ten. He's talking about if you believe that God stopped speaking, if you believe that He no longer speaks, then quote, you have imagined up unto yourself a God who is not a God of miracles. And that's a major theme of Moroni's teachings. All throughout the rest of this book, you'll talk about a God of miracles. Verse 11, I will show unto you a God of miracles. Now, if you don't believe in miracles, then you have to reject the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Because the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was one of God's greatest miracles. In how a young man at 23 years of age could produce a nearly 600-page book filled with absolutely unbelievable connections, like Mike and I have been talking about this whole year, if you don't believe in miracles, you have to reject the book, because the book is a miracle. But there are people who claim there are no miracles, and if there are no miracles, you have to reject the Book of Mormon, because it is a miracle. So Moroni talks about the continuation of miracles. And then he does say, verse 20, The reason why he ceases to do miracles among the children of men is because that they dwindle in unbelief and depart from the right way and know not the God in whom they should trust. When God stops doing miracles, it's because his children stop believing in him. But as long as there's a believing soul there will be miracles. And so Moroni testifies in verse 21, I say unto you that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing, whatsoever he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted unto him. And then I love this condition at the very end. If you have faith and you ask God, you'll get an answer. And then he adds, this promise is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth. It's not just for Latter-day Saints. It's not just for Christians. Anyone who asks God in faith for a blessing will receive a blessing. He is a God of miracles. Do not imagine a God that has stopped
1: performing miracles because he performs miracles. I love that verse. Yeah, I, I love the qualifiers that he puts on after that because I think if you read it in isolation, you miss what he's really saying. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the qualifiers, and then I'm going to talk about how I package it. So go to the next verse. He says this. After he says, if you ask, he says, he that believe and is baptized is going to be saved. And then skip to 25. So I like what Bryce said. Whether or not you've been baptized, that promises to everybody. But then verse 25, he says, Whosoever shall believe in my name doubting nothing, I'll confirm my words. And then verse 26, who can deny his words? Who can deny his sayings? Who will rise up against the almighty power of the Lord? Verse 27. Verse 27. Once again, he says, doubt not. So the middle of verse 25, don't doubt. The middle of verse 27, don't doubt. And then verse 28, okay, you're going to ask, be wise in your probation. So be wise in your asking, but then in the middle of verse 28, but ask with a firmness unshaken, and then that ye yield not to temptation, but that ye will serve the true and living God. So the way I package this idea that we're talking about is you ask and it will happen, is you got to believe. You've got a couple times Moroni says, don't doubt. And then he says, don't consume it upon your lusts. That's right in the middle of verse 28. And then ask that you can serve God. If I go to God and I say, I really want this blessing, I've got to ask myself, is my intent to serve God? Am I asking with faith unshaken? Am I not doubting? And am I being wise in the days of my probation? And so once I package kind of those qualifiers into that verse, it really opens up a lot of possibilities, but it also really narrows my focus. So for example, if I'm on a mission and I want to be blessed to be able to speak the language, I think we fall in line there, right? I'm serving the Lord and I have faith unshaken. And so I just remember the first time I read that as a young man, I thought, okay, there's my ticket, Bryce. It's all going to be there. But I think Mor- Moroni is really saying, no, we got to focus this in. And I love how you brought that up where you said, this is to everybody. Yeah. He repeated that, the verse you read earlier
0: in verse 25 about confirming my words. Notice he says it again. If you believe in my name, nothing doubting, unto him will I confirm all my words, and then there's that phrase, even unto the ends of the earth. God doesn't favor one group over another group. Anyone who asks in faith is going to receive a blessing. So do not think that God has lost his ability to perform miracles.
1: I think one of the things that we didn't talk about is how this applies is that group, meaning anciently, the wealthy were kind of like considered blessed by the gods. And in the Book of Mormon, sometimes the Nephites get full of themselves and think we're, we're pretty awesome. But twice, I love how you mentioned that twice. It's in there. It's to everybody. Look at this verse. Go to 840. Why do you build up your secret combinations to get gain and cause it the widows should mourn? And also the orphans mourn before the Lord. That's a theme that's woven throughout the Old Testament, that Jehovah is a God of widows and orphans. And to me, that's kind of like the outcast group. And so Moroni brings this up where he's like, nope, God knows those people. And I really like that. Because if you think about where the church is really growing, there's places in the world that are perhaps economically or their governmental system is kind of widowed or orphaned. And yet God knows who these kids are. These people. I remember one time I was in a country where there was no electricity and there were those beat up Toyota trucks that you've seen on the videos that the terrorists have, right? I was in one of those countries and I saw this boy on the corner that didn't have shoes on and he was about six or seven and it looked like he hadn't eaten in a couple of days. And I felt this impression God knows that kid. That's an important thing. And Moroni brings it up, and it's all over in the Old Testament, all these verses about how God is the God of orphans and widows. And it's all over the Book of Mormon. And I love back when Amulek rebuked even the righteous.
0: Do you remember when he said, call upon his holy name? I'm in Alma 34. Cry unto him, pray, cry unto him, cry unto him. Talks about pouring out our souls uh, verse 30, 27, when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your heart be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually. So go be a prayerful person. And then he throws this verse in and says, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. After ye have done these things, which is prayer, righteousness, good stuff. After you have done these things, if you turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and the afflicted and impart of your substance, if ye have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is in vain and availeth you nothing. It's that same theme that flows all over the Book of Mormon. God
1: is the God of orphans and widows. You know, in Joseph Smith's day, there was a whole group of people that believed in unconditional grace that there were a certain group of people that were saved. And that really bothered Joseph. I can imagine as he translated this text, the spirit probably, he probably was just shouting hallelujah. He probably had moments where he's like, yeah, sometimes I get emotional because I'm like, God knows these people. Yeah.
0: He is a God of miracles. It matters. And a God of miracles knows his children and blesses them and needs our help. in. I don't know that he needs, but he would like our help in blessing them. So there's number three. If you've ever felt abandoned, Maroni's nice talking to you. Yep. So there's number three, don't reject the Book of Mormon because you don't believe in Christ. Number two, don't reject the Book of Mormon because you think that revelation has stopped in our day. And number three, don't reject the Book of Mormon because you've stopped believing in miracles. You don't think that God is a God of miracles. Now, the fourth one is hidden, I think, in verse 26. I'm just trying to give a handle to what Moroni is trying to talk about. In the middle of verse 26, it talks about who will despise the works of the Lord. May I suggest that some people reject the Book of Mormon simply because they despise the works of the Lord. Um, I I think back at Korahor. Do you remember when Korahor, who knew there was a a God, he knows there's a God, but along comes the devil and teaches him something that's very carnally pleasing. It's very pleasing to the carnal mind. So he starts teaching it. And the more he teaches it, the more he believes it. Even though he knows there's a God— He's teaching what is carnally pleasing. And we find a lot of people get caught up into in teachings that are carnally pleasing, and they end up despising the works of the Lord. Quite often when people leave this church, they have to leave all religion and God Himself because they end up despising the works of the Lord. Don't let that happen to you. Don't Reject the Book of Mormon because you turn against the works of the Lord. And one of the great reasons we do that is we begin to believe things that are carnally pleasing, like Korahor says he did. Jacob will say, to be spiritually minded is life and to be carnally minded is death. You will turn against God if you allow the carnal mind to feed and to grow. So, number four, don't reject the Book of Mormon. And we see this all over the—we see this mostly inside the church. People are rejecting and walking away from the, the Book of Mormon because they end up despising the works of the Lord. Other people reject it from outside because they despise the works of the Lord. So Moroni says at the end of verse 26, "...all ye who are despisers of the works of the Lord, you will wonder and perish." And that's a sad commentary of what's coming. If you reject the Book of Mormon, if you end up turning against the Book of Mormon, if you end up despising it for whatever reason, someday you will wonder and perish. That's sad, but it's true. Number five, Moroni shows a major concern here that people are going to reject the Book of Mormon because of their imperfections. Notice how often he says it. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of scriptures just to show you how often this is in Moroni's mind. So in verse 31, he says, condemn me not because of mine imperfections, neither my father because of his imperfections. In other words, don't reject the book because immortal people made it. Immortal people filled it. If you go back to chapter 8, when he first starts talking about the book, he mentions that same thing. So chapter 8, Moroni takes over, he talks about his father dying and the Lamanites, and then as soon as he shifts his attention in verse 12, whoso receiveth this record, notice what he throws in, and shall not condemn it because of the imperfections which are in it. You see that major concern. Don't reject it because it was written by imperfect people. And then if you'll flip to Ether chapter 12, it comes up there. So Moroni is about to translate the record of the Jaredites. And there's just this, this sweet little moment where he's reading the, the record of the brother of Jared. There's this sweet little moment where he's become very familiar with the writings of the brother of Jared. And then he says in verse 22, "...it is by faith that my fathers have obtained the promise that these things should come through their brethren to the Gentiles." So that's the transition from faith into what he's about to say. And then he says, verse 23, "...Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing." Not like the brother of Jared. Verse 24, thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Behold, That's
1: how I feel texting. <laughs> My fingers are
0: too fat. Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. For man, when he wrote, it was overpowering of t- to read. Verse 25, thou hast made our words powerful and great even that we cannot write them. Wherefore, when we write... We behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words, and I fear lest the Gentiles will mock at our words. You see his big concern. If you've ever tried to write something significant, spiritual, like a talk or something, don't you get nervous that people aren't going to, they're, they're going to stumble over your words So that becomes a major, major theme from Moroni. Now go to the very title page of the Book of Mormon. He wrote that into the title page of the Book of Mormon. So very beginning of the Book of Mormon where, you know, the title page where it says, the Book of Mormon, an account written by the hand of Mormon upon plates. Notice the very last sentence. He says, and now if there are faults... They are the mistakes of men.
1: It's clearly on his mind. Yeah.
0: If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God, that you may be found spotless at the judgment seat. Clearly, this is on Moroni's mind. Now, if I can expand that a little bit. I think his concern isn't just for their weaknesses in writing the Book of Mormon. He was also concerned about Joseph Smith's weaknesses and the leaders of the church weaknesses in bringing the book forth and proclaiming it to the world. Don't reject the book because human beings brought it forth and are imperfect, Don't reject the book because Joseph Smith was an unlearned man. Don't reject the book because your bishop said something imperfect.
1: Even Jesus got rejected because they said, we know your family. We know you guys aren't perfect. You're just this carpenter's son. In other words, God clothes gold in clay.
0: Yeah. And I love the language here in the title page. Don't reject the things of God because of the mistakes of men. If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God. And that was Moroni's major concern, and that we clearly see that today. Many people are rejecting the book because they get caught up in some human mistake that a leader made, or that Joseph Smith made, or that someone else did, and they end up rejecting the things of God because of the mistakes of men. So that's the fifth one on the list, and and clearly this is a major concern of Moroni throughout the whole book, and it's clearly seen in our day. People are rejecting the book because of the mistakes of men. So don't do that. Don't reject the things of God because human beings are involved and
1: they make mistakes. And attach right to the end of that verse. He says, another thing we learn from Scripture is to be more wise— Than we have been you the latter-day reader need to be more wise than we have been and bryce you and I have talked about this a lot right that we can read scripture To learn from their mistakes whether it's the old testament people There's all kinds of people filled with mistakes and foibles that could be its own several hour podcast moroni is begging us to learn from this And I think that's another thing that scripture does is it opens our eyes and opens our mind and I also think that Just imagine for a minute That you had to write this book, that you had the records to all this stuff. And then I gave you a stylus and I gave you a rock and you had to melt down the ore and make the plates and do this. I mean, I've already, I'm getting a headache. And these are the things that they did. So look in verse 32. Now behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge and the characters which we've called reformed Egyptian. That's what we call them being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. And if our plates would have been sufficiently large, we would have written in Hebrew, but behold, the Hebrew has been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, you would have had no imperfection in our record. We talked about this earlier in a podcast where we talked about the changes in the language of the Nephites. Think about this. They had a thousand years. Clearly their language changed. In essence, think about English. If you're listening to this and you're an English speaker, what is English? English. Well, it's reformed and repackaged from other languages, which come from other languages, and everything's reformed and repackaged. And so essentially he's saying, listen, even if it was in Hebrew, it would be the way we do it. But here's the principle that I pull out of this. Moroni expresses to you his weakness. He says, listen, I have limited space. My characters, the language I'm using isn't the best, but I'm going to maximize it. I'm going to take all these limitations that I have and I'm going to make something great. Now, he couples his effort with all that he can do with God. And that's my message to you, the listener. Wherever you are, think about your life. We all have limitations. Don't let them stop you. If you have something limiting you, go to the Lord and talk about it and say, okay, here's my limitations. What can I do? And I have a testimony that the Lord will help you to grow in the midst of your faults, which kind of reminds me of Jacob Five. Remember where the tree gets planted in the cruddy piece of dirt. And the servant's like, why are you planting it here? Counsel me not. I know. Such a good verse. So powerful. I think all of us have to do verse 32 and verse 33. We're not going to have the ideal circumstance, but we do our best. And you know what? The Lord will pick up the difference. Don't quit. Keep going. I love
0: that because the very man that wrote that was told by the Lord. I'm reading from Ether. But Moroni said, If they have not charity, it mattereth not unto me, for thou hast been faithful. Wherefore, thy garment shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. Moroni is a great type of all of us. If we see our weaknesses, if we recognize our imperfections and we do all that we
1: can with the Lord's help, those weaknesses will become strong. Okay, so with that, we thank you for listening. We have ended the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon. It ends with Moroni's testimony. And so Moroni thinks he's done. And what we're going to find in the next couple of podcasts is he's going to come out and say, you know, I thought I was done. Apparently, I'm not dead yet. And so I'm going to pick up and he's got to be making some plates because he mentions in this. this I don't have any ore. Yeah, he's like, I'm out of room. And we know that he keeps walking or traveling or, you know, because he's kind of on the run. And so we'll talk about Ether and Moroni in the upcoming podcast. We're so grateful that you have made time in your day to be with us in the Book of Mormon. And with that, we'll see you next time.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.